Hi, I'm Peter Opeth. Welcome to episode two of Alt Control Create, the podcast for small creative businesses in these changed and challenging times, brought to you in association with Expo North. In this episode, I talk with Nick Chapin, publisher of Limbo, a new art and culture magazine that was published for the first time recently and which takes a very different approach to the organisation of its business, adopting a collective profit share model. And as to its content, well, there's more about that in the podcast, as well as its very interesting partnership with We Present, the editorial platform of We Transfer. Limbo is a striking piece of publishing, a large format, very high quality magazine, which at any time would have been a bold move to put together. But Limbo has been produced and published in print during the height of the pandemic lockdown measures and is very much, and here I quote, a magazine about the state we're in. Originally intended as a one-off, the reception the project has received has persuaded its founders to think again. Boasting contributions from the likes of Peaches, Vivian Westwood and Dan Fox, the content is stellar to say the least. Previously, Nick was director of publishing at art and culture magazine Freeze, which is of course of considerable renown. He's also been general manager of Virtue, the commercial creative division of Vice. I was very keen to connect this podcast with Nick and to get the lowdown on Limbo. And if you've listened to the very first episode of this podcast, which you definitely should, with creative coach Mark McGuinness, You'll know that a big theme for me in this podcast is how creative businesses can creatively address the uncertainty of the times. Limbo comes from the viewpoint that the worlds of art, culture and creativity will be in limbo for some time to come. And the magazine, in its own words, aims to serve as a time capsule of sorts, a companion to the journey ahead and an inspiration for a new way of doing things. The rest I'll leave to Nick. Well, look, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to do this, Nick. I'm very grateful to you. Um, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for your interest in Limbo. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating project. But where I'd actually like to start um, was uh, just prior to the, the pandemic and the, and the lockdown. Can I take you back to earlier in the year, if you could remember that? I'm rapidly forgetting a lot of... Seems a lot like a different time. lifetime now, doesn't um, it? Yeah. What, what kind of creative direction was your work taking early in 2020, kind of prior to the lockdown. And what were the kind of main issues for you that this industry was facing at that time? And what about the artists, the writers, and the people you're collaborating with then? You know, what were the kind of issues prior to all of this? Definitely. Well, I mean, I can, if I can go back even just a little bit further, I guess it might help kind of set the stage. But um, up until November of 2019, I was the publishing director at Freeze. Um, and prior to that, I had worked at Vice, uh, so I was, you know, kind of coming to all this from a very much like a digital publishing background and then kind of coming into, into the art world and really, I guess, just trying to think about how you can look at a space like art, which, you know, especially the kind of art that Freeze deals with, which is the, the art market, you know, kind of um, uh, commercial galleries, institutions, things like that, um, and sort of apply some of the things that we had learned at a place like Vice, which was a very digitally focused publisher, and think about how we could, you know, because Freeze is underlying mission is to support galleries, to support artists and to support the art industry, as it were. Um, and so I kind of joined there a few years ago, thinking about how we could um, you know, take kind of contemporary publishing uh, sensibility and, and bring that to the art world and see how we could you know, add to that ecosystem. Um, and, I, uh, and, and I guess, you know, in some ways, there's this sort of a direct line between that project and, and this one. Um, I, I left Freeze just before I had a baby, so I was sort of looking to take some time off 
um, and kind of cultivate more of a freelance practice. Uh, so I could have a bit of a lifestyle change, I guess. Um, so to, to answer your question directly, in January of 2020, I had sort of just gotten myself back to work. I had a, a new baby in the in the next room and I was doing some consultancy with different publishers and kind of all, all around the world in, in, in different areas, but all kind of looking at art culture um, and sort of the intersection between digital and more traditional spaces. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, I mean, I, I think, I think you're asking a good question because this is an industry which has been in flux in some ways for, for a longer time. You know, it's not just the, um, the current crisis that, that has kind of disrupted things. You know, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the, the art world certainly, and, and many aspects of the, the creative industry have been, you know, um, holding out against change for, for a long time. They, they tend to operate on a more traditional kind of framework, which has been disrupted by digital, by social, um, by a lot of, you know, new ideas uh, in both the practice of creativity, practice of art, but also in, in its commercialization. So, you know, I think that the, the project of trying to figure out where all this lands, you know, what 21st century creativity looks like is, is one that, that I and, and certainly a lot of other people in the industry have been thinking about for a while. Um, so that was very much on my mind. Yeah. And I guess it became all the more apropos when suddenly uh, everyone who I was working with had to put our projects on hold. Um, you know, and there was obviously no hard feelings. I mean, suddenly I think no one really knew what was coming next. Well, I was, uh, for example, working with one publisher in the U.S., thinking about how they might kind of launch a UK business. And suddenly we didn't know what the UK media business might look like in six months, let alone six years. So, um, yeah, so I think this kind of uh, ongoing uncertainty and questions about what is sustainable um, in, in our industry were suddenly really brought to the fore when, um, when the crisis hit. Uh, just on a, on a kind of personal level, um, when the lockdown started and all of a sudden our kind of access to markets, our markets all just kind of disappeared. What did that mean immediately for you? Was that like kind of an immediate drying up of work? Were you uh, able to finish projects or things just left, you know, like the Mari Celeste or? Uh... Yeah, no, it very much was. I mean, I think it, yeah, it feels like you would sort of go back in time and see things abandoned, you know, kind of tables half set and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it was definitely that kind of a feeling of suddenly everyone just kind of froze, you know, and that was really the feeling. I think things didn't kind of disappear so much as they just kind of went on in, indefinite kind of hiatus and that was a really strange feeling because you know more than the sense of a of an oncoming disaster or recession i think was just this crippling sense of uncertainty and suddenly everyone you know really had to just sit back and wait and i guess that was part of the feeling for me as well you know first yeah absolutely i lost my work i you know i didn't sort of know where my next paycheck was going to come from. But there was also a sense that we were all kind of reduced to bystanders you know this suddenly you kind of found yourself glued to the TV or sure. to your social media feed, kind of watching this, you know, one car crash after another. And I think that was also, you know, frustrating because especially when you're working in the creative industries and, um, and, you know, trying to sort of shape your own destiny, build your own projects. I think that was really, um, really unsettling thing for a lot of people. And that, you know, that had a lot to do with the genesis of Limbo, both because I wanted to kind of take my destiny back into my own hands. But I think, you know, we sort of knew that everybody else would as well. Artists, designers, creatives, everyone, no one likes sit, sitting idly by and watching the world kind of um, fall apart around them. Everyone wants to take part in it. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, just just <coughs> before we get into, into uh, limbo, can I ask you, had you ever in your kind of creative career 
experienced a moment like that before. Could you sort of compare that to anything that you had, um, you know, witnessed or been a part of in a in a in a career? Because all of our creative careers are relatively volatile, aren't they? I think. More yeah, so, absolutely. A whole, you know. I mean, I think that I've experienced things personally like that, but what was so different was the collective sort of nature of it. You know, so we've all gone through transitional periods where we left one job, we sort of thought about taking others, we set up on our own. You know, I've 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 launched a few small businesses myself before. So I I've been through those periods of uncertainty. But what was so striking was that suddenly everybody was in the same position. And there was that feeling of being in suspended animation and in flux. Um and to me, that was both really frightening, but also really interesting because suddenly everyone who you loved working with, everyone who you wanted to work with, um, had some free time, you know, and that was, um, and that was really interesting. And I think there have been very few moments when suddenly everybody, you know, was not only, um, on hold, but also thinking about the same issues, right? Because what the crisis sort of brought about, I think, for all of us, first and foremost, was a sense of fragility, a sense of vulnerability, um, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us, um, and a kind of a sense of community. You know, there was a real kind of gut check, I think, when everyone started to think about what is my community? Who are my people? You know, we, we, we're so accustomed to working in this kind of globalized um, you know, uh, world where all the parts are kind of spinning at the same time. And you know, suddenly when that stops, you start to really wonder, you know, where are my roots? What are my foundations? Sure. I, I think, though, if I, if I kind of remember in those early days, in the March and so on, in the UK particularly, uh, uh, shortly after that, and this I think is really where limbo comes in, it was maybe a few weeks before the actual moment of shock of lockdown. And then this that turns into a, a moment of, positivity and creativity what what i don't know if that was true for you too but what kind of happened in that space for you so the lockdowns occurred and then there's a while mm. before limbo kind of emerges although that was quick what what was the process inside that what happened for you that kind of led to that moment where limbo um emerges yeah well we actually started thinking about limbo before the lockdown right. went into effect formally so it was very much those last days of march when um, we didn't know, you know, that the lockdown, well, we, we kind of knew it was coming. We didn't know when or where or how or to what extent it would, it would, it would kick in. Um, but what happened in March was that, you know, even before the, the government stepped in, the kind of the, you know, the industry, the, the, um, the de facto lockdown kind of took, took place. And I think that that hit early for a lot of people in the creative world, you know, brands stopped their activity just to kind of wait and see what would happen. I know a lot of publishers started cutting back on freelance contracts. You know, you kind of just started uh, mitigating risk, I guess. Um, and so there was this kind of sense that we were sliding towards something. Um, and I think for a lot of people, work stopped before it had to, yeah. you know. And, and, and so for me, I started to kind of think, hmm, okay, this is, this is interesting. Um, obviously, it's problematic <laughs> for me, but, but more, I guess, more so it was about thinking, what's everyone doing right now? You know, you had this kind of moment of synchronicity when everyone was doing the same thing, you know, basically sitting at home, uh, watching the world fall, fall apart. And, you know, one of the first thoughts I had was, you know, someone should take a snapshot of this somehow. This is like, this is going to be a rare moment in our lives where everyone's thinking about the same thing, where everyone's doing the same thing, which is, which, which is nothing, you know, and, and wouldn't this be an interesting moment for a kind of, a cross section, like a survey of the creative world, you know, wouldn't it be, I, you know, speaking with my 
wife and saying, wouldn't you kill to look inside everyone's bedroom right now? You know, <laughs> what are people making? What are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they not making? You know, because there was that, that real kind of creative free song, you know, between, um, between doing and not doing right. There was, because, and, and I guess, uh, that's always an interesting idea. This, this sort of fact that periods of inactivity and, um, uh, downtime can often be the ones that kind of lead to the most generative, the most creative, the most exciting things. So there was just such a kind of a global sense that that, that, that was taking place. I thought, you know, voyeuristically, it would be really interesting uh-huh. to, 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 to get a look at all that. And at the same time, I started talking to friends, you know, about their, their work falling off, drying up. Um, and I think the two things started to de- develop for me at the same time, you know, how could we take advantage of this really interesting editorial moment? Um, and, by doing so, how could we put something together that would actually help basically? Because, you know, one of the things, and we can talk about this more at length, but, you know, that's really been re- revealed for me is that the creative world is not in a very sustainable place these days. You know, we've, we've gotten to a place where editorial work pays very little, if anything at all. You know, people flood social media with creativity for free, you know, basically providing content for Facebook and Google and everyone else, you know, uh, in the hopes that by playing the game, by taking part in this kind of uh, endlessly spinning wheel, they will eventually make a, um, make a living, make a sustainable venture out of, out of their practice. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough kind of way to structure industry at any time. And when something like this happens, I think what you see is the wheels stop, the machinery seizes up, and there's no safety net. You know, that's, that's what was most striking to me was that, People uh, all around the world were being furloughed, but you know most artists, most creative people, have no one to furlough them, right? And unless they had a kind of a, a formal setup as an independent practitioner, um, you know they, they they weren't eligible for any any government support. I certainly wasn't, um, and I think that there was just this sense that you know this is an opportunity to really look at the foundations of how our industry works and think a little bit about how sustainable that is, because we know it's not sustainable. We know that a world where you have to do unpaid internships and, you know, again, kind of advertise yourself incessantly on social media just to kind of climb the greasy pole, you know, that's, that, that, that's not necessarily, um, I think, the way we'd all like the creative world to work. I mean, that, there's so many, so many points and issues in there, so many interesting things. Um, but I presume that Limbo wasn't just like kind of a prototype you had in your mind that you then said, right, this... This is how it's going to be. You had no, to develop totally. this idea in some way. How did, how did that occur then? How, how did that take you know, place? I mean, in some ways it was really organic. It was just about problem solving. You know, we kind of, I had this sense that there was a really interesting editorial product to create, but we didn't have any way to pay for it. You know, I, I, I didn't have um, the money to fund it myself and there weren't any kind of uh, convenient investors standing by. Um, and I thought, you know, how can we how can we get around that? How could we find a way to make this thing? It really feels like it should be made. Um, and, you know, if we want to do it in a fair, equitable and kind of community oriented kind of way, uh, what kind of a model could work? And, and this idea of a kind of a, a co-op or a profit share kind of came to me, you know, as a kind of really not as almost not an idealistic thing at first, but just as a, as a way of working around, you know, if, we, if, if there's not a pot of money sitting out there right now to fund this, let's get everyone to own a piece of it. You know, let's, let's all invest that small bit of time that it'll take to take it to the next step and see if we can get enough momentum or enough critical mass that it could work. So it was really kind of born out of necessity in that way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I started speaking with a few people about it. And to be honest, I kind of thought it was one of those mad ideas that you just kind of dream up when you're sitting 
at home alone. That, uh, it would never really come off, but people really responded to it. You know, I spoke to two really close, brilliant friends, Francesca Gavin, who's a great editor, um, journalist, and uh, David Lane, who's a brilliant art director, creative director, and founder of The Gourmand, and, you know, uh, someone who makes beautiful magazines. And, and the three of us started talking about it, and there was kind of an instant, I guess, uh, sense that this had legs, that it had sort of, sure. you know, the, the germ of something was there. And so, um, yeah, we kind of went from there, I guess. What's the kind of synergy here between the kind of practical, physical reality of, you know, a collaborative, cooperative approach and actually defining what is the right content for this moment as well? Mm. What was your kind of editorial aesthetic idea developing here? Because it, it, uh, I, I hope anyone listening to this actually, you know, gets a copy. There's a variety of covers you can have. It's by no means an apology for a, uh, for a new way of working. This is a big in-your-face Really, yeah. really uh, nice object. Um, it's a fantastic piece of magazine publishing at any Thank time. You. Um, how did you develop the, you know, the, how, what's the synergies between the the, yeah. the the kind of practical requirements of the moment, but also the creative aesthetic requirements of the moment? Mm. I guess there were, there were a couple of things that we were thinking about from the beginning that helped to shape that. One of them was very much a kind of like um, a refusal to accept the the, the digital uh, culture that sort of become completely prevalent at that moment. So everyone, you know, is spending six, seven, eight hours glued to their to their their phones, and in, I think everyone. So I certainly had a sense that audiences would have an appetite for something physical, something different. But also there was this kind of just this desire, I think, amongst all of us to just reject that. You know, we all come from an independent magazine kind of background. We believe in magazines as these kind of you know really beautiful. Um, portals for escapism, you know, for entering a different world. You know, magazines are something that someone lovingly pieces together and then you spend time with and you kind of immerse yourself in that world. And I think we all needed that. You know, there was a sense that kind of now more than ever, we needed that and we needed it in a a physical way. And I guess, you know, we also, we all come from the art world. And so we felt like if you're going to do this, it has to be really beautiful. You know, it's got to be tactile. It's got to be different. It's got to, and, and so I guess we started talking about the independent magazine tradition and thinking about how we can play with that, you know? So there's obviously this wonderful history of zines and kind of bedroom publishing from the, from the nineties, you know, especially in Britain, that was really interesting to us. And we were kind of thinking, wow, everyone's been forced back into their bedroom. How do we go back to those, those early days of the face or freeze and, you know, um, and kind of tap back into that. And we also thought there's this wonderful tradition, almost like cliche tradition of print formats, you know, yeah. uh, horoscopes and classified ads and, uh, you know, gardening columns and things that, that, that we all kind of know, but have sort of gone by the, by the wayside. And we thought, how can we kind of bring those things back in a, in a, in a, and appropriate them and give them over to artists to kind of reinvent. So there was this real, I think, desire to um, take the idea of what a magazine is and can be, what it has represented historically, and sort of reimagine all of that animated by the spirit of this moment, basically. Um, How how does that translate then into, I mean, did you permission? I mean, did you approach mm. artists and say, what do you think about this? Uh, here's a project. I mean, did you ask uh, some of the collaborators, you know, to do something around the gardening column or a pet's corner, or or did they come it, to you? You know, was, did it take shape? No, so it was a mix. It was, I mean, it, the, the whole thing evolved pretty organically. To be honest, our our main idea was that we wanted every page to be like a look inside someone's mind and someone's home. You know, everyone's kind of quarantined around the world. How can we kind of offer just these little glimpses into their creative 
practice, their sort of current state of being, and how can we knit that all together into a sort of a patchwork? So, so there was always a sense that it had to be a really broad church. You know, this 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 magazine had to somehow bring together really disparate kind of work because we 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 really wanted to give everyone a blank page on some level. We didn't want to be too prescriptive. We wanted to go to people and say, "What are you making? What are you thinking about? You know, what's your response to where we're all at, basically." Um, and, and then find a way to house that all in, in this kind of format. That said, we, you know, we, we definitely were strategic on some level. We thought about people whose work we knew would, would, would resonate with this kind of a response. We thought about people who needed the work, people who were doing projects that, that were already part and parcel of this whole kind of okay. um, way of thinking. And then there were a few things that we knew that we wanted, like you said, like, you know, we sort of thought we definitely want a horoscopes, you know, called who can do that? And we thought about, you know, matching artists up with ideas where, but even then it was a pretty loose brief, honestly. It was more like, Here, here's a thought, what's your point of departure, you know, and go off and do your thing. Um, and people took that in a pretty wild set of directions. And if you've seen the magazine, you know, there's nothing traditional about it. It's all pretty lateral thinking, which is, you know, which is definitely what we wanted to capture. I mean, I think, yes, it does. I think it also ties very much into that tradition of the, of the beautifully designed, you know, that magazines... Mm. Uh, you know, back in my day when I was at a timeout in the 1980s and you had things like the face, you know, there was a very strong sense of the visual emerging in magazines, you know, not just information and specialists and yeah. and talk and words. It was the the opportunities of glossy print and the and the beauty of spreads and of the way you flick through a magazine. I mean, were you able to curate it in that kind of way as well? I mean, uh, definitely. Yeah, because... You know, and, and I think that's that's sort of the art of something like this is that you want to sort of make, um, you know, to, to keep your doors open to any kind of content that comes in. But at the same time, it's very difficult to make a magazine, right? You know, to get the pacing, the structure, um, you know, the, the, the readability and the navigability of it, you know, all, all these things kind of are, um, are difficult to achieve. And a, a lot of the success of that in Limbo is down to David Lane, who, who is just, you know, really one of the best Arc directors of magazines out there. He worked with me at Freeze again. You know, he kind of um, created the Gourmand, and 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 he is someone who, even though he's you know got a very progressive sensibility, is really rooted in the tradition of great magazine making. All of us, as I said, you know, had had a huge amount of respect for the history of magazines, and and you're totally right. It it, it is a hugely kind of visual and aesthetic kind of practice. It's, um, I mean, I think more than half of the significance and the kind of the experience of reading a magazine comes from the way it's put together rather than just what's in it. Um, so if you, if you get it right, a magazine should be more than the sum of its parts. Right. Um, yeah. But that does take a lot of work. And I can tell you that doing it all uh, digitally without ever being able to sit down around an, an editorial table or pin things up on the wall is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about members of, of the team there, the people who you're, you know, you've mm. embarked on this, um, uh, adventure with because um, I think it is an adventure is you don't necessarily know the outcome I presume you know where where this takes you how just for the you know this is a podcast really about not just being a creative person in these kind of challenging times but how to actually run a kind of creative business particularly mm. small small businesses small teams do you find that, that that apart from kind of some of the relationships with the artists and the people who are you know submitting their work to you that the actual roles inside of a business like this um, are also undergoing something of a reset. I mean, do you see things as very rigidly defined? Everyone has a job title and a job description, and at the end of the day, uh, 
you know, a kind of creative sausage factory prints out uh, <laughs> a two deadline, a, a product that gets delivered and, you know, promoted and uh, and so on. I mean, are those roles, you've worked with these people before a lot. I'm sure mm. you consider them friends, you know, that uh, that's how the way it goes, you know. But are there other roles, relationships, do you think, up for grabs as well in this kind of reset? Definitely. Although I think that, and it's maybe it's a cop out answer, but it's always, it's always, you know, kind of half of one and half of the other. I think you're totally right that in, you know, especially for smaller businesses, the world that we're working in requires a lot more fluidity and, um, uh, you know, flexibility in terms of how you put a team together. One of the things that was really important for us was that all of us were to some degree all rounders. You know, we all had an editorial sensibility. We all had a commercial sensibility. We all had a design sensibility. And I think it would have been very hard to work um, together if, you know, in, in that sort of small team, really, you know, properly bootstrapping something. If we didn't, if we weren't able to all kind of, you know, take a take a hand in, in, in every part of the project. Sure. But that said, you know, there there was a very traditional on some level kind of breakdown of of roles you know i'm i'm a publisher francesca's an editor david's an art director you know that i mean there's kind of the the, the holy trinity of putting a magazine yeah. together and, yeah. and and that goes all the way back to the, the, what the you know the 19th century right so yeah. um yeah. so on some level yeah we were very much a kind of uh you know doing things differently um breaking down some of those boundaries but but there was definitely and you know also when you do something like this, you need to have a formula. You need to understand to some degree how things work. Otherwise, you just spin your wheels, you know? Yeah. And so there was, at some point, you know, you, you talk about the idea, you all get fired up about it. Then you have to just go off and roll up your sleeves and and, and do things. So yeah. someone has to start putting together a grid. Someone has to start reaching out for contributors and someone has to raise some money. Someone has to think about a timing plan, you know? I mean, there are just some some nuts and bolts that, you know, you can change people's titles as much as you want, but someone's got to do that work. And you know, usually different people have different um, skill sets and different sets of relationships as well. You know, Francesca has been working as a, as a, as a journalist in the art world for, you know, years and years and years. She was able to open her black book and call up amazing people. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been publishing magazines and, and working in media for a long time. I was able to get on the phone to, to advertisers and, and people who could support us, you know, so, so again, like I think, I think it's a bit of both. You definitely have to be smart, flexible, and it really helps to have people who uh, can think outside their own boxes when you're working in a small business. Um, but to some degree, you know, the uh, the rules are there for a reason, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, just um, on on the issue of brand, I mean, obviously that brings us very very much into focus is the name because um, it's not a name that one would traditionally think of using outside of this era. Uh, for a magazine, it's quite an ambivalent term, limbo. Well, it is for me. Mm. I mean, you might see it differently. How, how did that arise? How did you fix on this title? I mean, it's obviously very, very timely. You know? uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 a funny one. So um, when I first kind of wrote a one-page, you know, summary of this whole project, when I sat down, I kind of had the idea, I sat down and tried to sketch it out. Uh, I called the magazine Quarantine. Um, because that was the sort of, you know, and, and this is before quarantine even, even kicked in. And suddenly there was this, this word that felt very, you know, otherworldly and something out of history that we were all facing. And, um, and so that was the kind of the working title initially. Um, but then suddenly everything was quarantine this and quarantine that, uh, there were a million quarantines and all that kind of thing. And, but also I think, I think one of the things that we realized was that we didn't want this to be about coronavirus or about quarantine, um, or about just this moment, you know, because I think what 
the moment did was it pulled back the curtain on some level, you know, sort of revealed some of, um, you know, the, the, the foundations um, that we don't always look at. And I think in a much broader sense, it made us feel like the creative world, the art world, you know, is in flux, is in sort of a period of uncertainty. And even once lockdown ends and quarantine is over, it's still going to be in a period of uncertainty because, you know, some of these kind of assumptions have been unsettled. So we started, you know, thinking about how to express that. Uh, And um, limbo was one of the words that came to mind um, and it also had a lot of resonance because one of the first people who we reached out to to write for the magazine, Dan Fox, who's a brilliant writer, um, has has written a fantastic book called Limbo, yeah. which is about the idea um, that periods of unproductiveness, uh, you know, kind of fallow periods and downtime and, and and moments when you sort of feel a little bit lost or have writer's block and things like that, are actually you know part and parcel of the creative process. And I think that you know that was a an idea that very much resonated with me, Dan, you know, for, for anyone listening, you should really read Dan's book. I mean, it's Absolutely. a beautiful, um, you know, both a kind of a survey of the idea of limbo, um, but also a very personal kind of meditation on, on how, how he as a writer and editor has been through that process. So it's really, it's a really beautiful um, piece of thinking. And, uh, and so, you know, <laughs> in one of those classic moments, I started, crossing off names one at a time and thought, well, it's not hiatus and I definitely don't want it to be quarantined. And, you know, at some point limbo just started to really feel like the right word. And so I, I called down and I said, you're not going to believe this, but um, I think I want to call the magazine limbo, but I wouldn't think of doing it without your blessing because he said, well, look, first of all, I don't own limbo. I think, you know, the Catholic church is, uh, you know, a number of other people might have kind of a claim to that. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But he, would, he, he, he very generously uh, encouraged us to use the name. Um, and, you know, to come back to your previous point, it looks great in print, you know, and I think the first time that we sat down and started playing with typography, uh, and covers, you know, we saw limbo and it just kind of conjured up the spirit of the moment. You know, something classical and spiritual and bigger about it, but there's also something which is very prosaic, you know, we're, we, we are in limbo right now and that's very much the sentiment. And so it just felt right, I guess. And um, looking back now, I can't really imagine it called anything else. Is Limbo a brand? Do you think about a brand management process? Do you think of, do you think about those things now, or do you feel freer in some sort of way? It's a it's a it's a loaded question, Pete. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a very good question. I mean, um, I think so. I definitely come from a background of having worked on brands with brands, you know, both in terms of editorial brands, media brands, working with a lot of partners in uh, luxury and fashion spaces where brands really mean a lot. Um, so I think there's definitely, you know, it's, there's, there's no way around it. If you're, if you're, if you're putting something out there as a project, as an institution, as a, as an initiative, you know, to some degree, it has to have uh, an awareness of, of, of its own brand, the brand that it's creating, because things do, you know, gather and kind of accrete around brands just yeah. sort of organically, especially in the era of social media and everything else. So I think on some level we were thinking about like that, but, you know, to be really honest at the beginning, we didn't see this as anything more than an art project, okay. really. You know, we definitely had a kind of a, a commercial communal kind of mission baked into it, but we really thought this would be a one-off thing. We thought it was it was almost like appropriating the idea of a magazine rather than launching one. It was sort of you know meant to be almost kind of ironic on some level. The idea of doing a print magazine during 
lockdown in 2020. And so we kind of thought it would be something that we'd do once. We'd hopefully, hopefully help people out. And then probably, you know, that would be it. It would be kind of part of history. But the, you know, I guess we got some of the things right because the response to it has been so, so warm and encouraging and actually really emotional that it does suddenly feel like a brand now, like a, like something that people want to exist. You know, there's, there's a desire from contributors, from readers, from advertisers to see something like this as part of the landscape. Um, so I guess, um, I guess in that sense, you know, it feels like it has the potential to become um, a brand. And, and, you know, I hope, I mean, we don't, you know, again, this is a community company, right? You know, our, our, our charter states that this is not about profit. It's about supporting the community. So this is never going to become, um, you know, the next Google, but it's, it's, I, I, you know, I think what I'd like to think about it as is, is, is an initiative and a community that can live on. And if that's through more magazines, then brilliant. And if there are other ways that it can, it can take shape, um, then all the better, you know, it's really about responding to what community of people is feeling yeah. and, and wanting and how we can kind of build something together. I, I suppose that element of surprise you say about the, uh, I mean, the reception, no one would be surprised when they actually get their hands on it about, about the reception of it. It's just raises questions. Well, I, I think about the nature of the consumer, you know, mm. um, th- does it seem that something on that level has changed in the sense that you, you can't necessarily so easily define um, the audience, the consumer for a project like this, as you might have done back in, you know, the time of Freeze or Vice and, and so mm. on, that it's actually harder now to define the wants and needs of a, of a, of a group of people who might actually be your, your consumers? Yeah, it's a good question. I, mean, I think it's harder on some level. It's also easier on some level. If you think about how difficult it was to launch a magazine 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when some of those magazines came out, you know, there were massive barriers to entry, right? You know, even just the ability to print something, to distribute something. You know, there was a reason that Condé Nast and Hearst had a stranglehold on the magazine industry because it was it was hard. You know, it was expensive to, and actually, you, you know, you you were in a in a shootout for shelf space, right? Sure. Um, whereas to today, it's a lot easier. You know, independent magazines are having a comeback. You know, we're, we're certainly not not the first independent magazine to. Um, pop up doing things a bit differently, you know, thinking about itself as more than perhaps just a magazine because, and, you know, that's partially because printing is a lot easier because um, the production process, you know, uh, sourcing content and contributors and organizing those things is, is, is easier and selling magazines is easier. You know, social media has uh, torn the, 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 the financial heart out of the magazine industry in a lot of yeah. ways, but it's also made it a lot easier to connect with people. Um, you know, I know, for example, the Economist um, is a kind of famous case study in that regard. They, uh, you know, they they lost a huge amount of money from from advertising when when social media started to sort of eat away at their margins. But they found that they could actually sell a lot more subscriptions, and, and that actually kind of counterbalanced it. So, you know, all these things have a kind of a, a, a double edged nature to them. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, in in, in in some ways, as a result, it's a lot easier to know that there are people out there who care about contemporary art, who care about, you know, culture for us in a lot of ways, the community and the people who we brought into the project became proxies for that, you know? So we knew that if we could get a handful of artists um, who were certain uh, readership interested in involved in the magazine, then the magazine would have a lot of um, possibility, you know, to, to succeed. 
Uh, and you know that, that was really how we started. I mean, I think we we sat down and sort of brainstorming who we'd like to have in this magazine in a kind of dream yeah. scenario. You know, we made a long, long list of um, of all these brilliant artists, and it was it was one of those lists that you know was completely unrealistic. It was like everyone who you've ever wanted to have a magazine in, in a magazine if you're an editor or a publisher or whatever. Um, but you know, as I said, we had the contacts, and we just thought, well, damn, let's just ask. I mean, you know, you can't it can't hurt to ask, right? Um, and I think on the first day that we sent out requests, uh, Miranda July, um, Julie Verhoeven and Peaches kind of all said, yes. And these are just kind of like three, like icons of, yeah. you know, counterculture, um, uh, art and, um, and thinking. And we just thought, man, that's kind of a magazine already, right? You can sort yeah. of put the three of them, uh, you know, in, in, in most magazines and feel pretty happy about the issue. And then it was just sort of snowballed from there. You know, more and more people started saying yes. And, and this, this, this list, which we kind of thought it would be great to have two or three people from, you know, we kind of got almost all of them. And, and I think it was at that moment that we started to feel like we had hit on something, that there was, a, there was an appetite. Because if, if there's an appetite from the artists to be part of it, there's probably going to be appetite from the people who follow those artists yeah. to, to, to buy it, to support it, yeah. um, and to get behind it. And so, you know, it really was that kind of getting that critical mass of community together that sort of was the proof point for us, I guess. I mean, the appetite there from the artists is really interesting. And do you think that had been kind of latent in the previous world? It's just that it hadn't been, you know, adequately Hmm. tapped into by the art magazine and magazine market in general. Was this a moment that's kind of arisen? But it was there before. People wanted it. It's just that the, the industry didn't somehow see it or permit it in some kind of way. I think, yeah, uh, you know, I think the, the, the art world and certainly the, you know, the, and the creative community more broadly has always had a huge amount of, um, you know, community spirit to it of sort of a desire for more established people to support younger artists. That's always been, you know, part of the tradition. Um, and I've certainly seen that at periods in my career, uh, Vice and at Freeze, when, when we did things that did have a kind of a, community ethos to them where, where we were putting kind of, you know, collective um, success and ce- celebration at the heart of things. There was always more, more appetite, um, both from audiences and, and from participants, but you're right that there, that there just hadn't necessarily been a logical framework there to kind of base an entire magazine around or entire business around. And that's because, you know, it's not, it's not profitable, right? I mean, you know, if you, if you're doing something like what we're doing, you know, you are um, taking, it from the beginning that, you know, no central entity is going to make a lot of money off this. You know, I'm, I've created this and, 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 and publish it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to pay myself the lowest hourly rate that I've ever worked for in my life, you know, because, um, because it's, it's not about, you know, kind of generating wealth for a shareholder. It's yeah. about generating wealth as a community. So once you kind of accept that, it then opens up a lot of possibilities. And, and, and I do think that, so, you know, I guess to answer your question, yeah, this, the spirit has certainly been latent there. You know, people, especially in, in the world's of art and creativity, want to support each other. You know, they're very progressive, you know, very interested in um, community rather than, yeah. than commerce. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these worlds have been, you know, have, have been dominated by things that became big business. You know, magazines were big business in the 80s and 90s. Art fairs are big business, you know, um, uh, you know, brands and, and agency kind of work and kind of thing, a big business. And, and, and so, you know, the problem is that the people who make the work, the people who make creativity and art special, um, often aren't, you know, I suppose some of the individual practitioners benefit tremendously, but, 
you know, there's, there's a separation, I guess, between the, the, the core community and the, you know, yeah. the profits. On some uh, what level. about advertisers? I mean, uh, I mm. presume there's a lot of uh, positive brand messaging in the association for them as well. How, how have they responded to this uh, title? Really well. I mean, you know, it was um, the, it was probably the most difficult moment in the past 50 years to go out um, you know, asking people to take part in a brand new magazine, especially one that one that that didn't exist, you know, didn't have, uh, I mean, anything more than a, uh, you know, kind of a, an A4 piece of paper um, to its name. Um, and I think from the beginning, almost everyone who I spoke to got it and wanted to support the project. Not everyone could. And, you know, I, I sort of, of course, knew that would be the case. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a tremendous amount of belief in the idea and obviously you know we didn't start talking to advertisers until we had a lot of great artists on board so that was already kind of like a an acid test i guess you know oh well if wolfgang tummins and vivian westwood are doing this then it's probably going to have some you know some um some merit to it um but i think what was really interesting to me was that people who we people wanted to look at it a little bit differently and you know the the entire project wouldn't have gone forward if it wasn't for um, the guys at We Present, which is the editorial arm of, of We Transfer, yeah. obviously a te- you know a tech business that uh, was lucky enough not to be suffering during this period because people are working online and so they were still you know um, uh, healthy. And when I approached them, they kind of instantly got it. You know, this is a company that does most of its its services are created for the creative community. They were already working as an editorial platform to commission people who were out of work. So they were kind of, you know, similarly minded. And they said that they'd love to be our kind of our, 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 our publishing partner, not to be an advertiser. They didn't want any kind of branding on it or anything like that. They just kind of wanted to work together. Yeah. Um, and it was a great fit because for me, I wanted to create a printed magazine. I wanted to sell it and and use those funds to redistribute to the community. And I kind of needed a digital partner who could help us promote it, who could publish some of the articles online. And so there was just a really organic fit there. They're they're kind of an amazing um, company anyway. You know, they've just been certified as a a B Corp. They're they're trying to think about, you know, being part of the creative world in a different way. And so... That was that was cool to me that, that that you know this wasn't going to attract people who wanted to splash their name on it. It was actually going to attract people who, who who bought into the idea that by being part of the community, by supporting the community, we're we're, we're all ultimately going to yeah. benefit. And what was the nuts and bolts of that? Did you know those guys beforehand, or did you know was that a kind of a a, a chance? Uh, you know, just a kind of you were both in the same uh, headspace at the same time, as it were. It was a bit of both. I mean, we we I have worked with them before. Um, but actually the conversation started because we were talking to Tyler Mitchell, um, a brilliant young photographer who's got, we have a fantastic feature, um, with him interview and amazing images from this fantastic project that he was running online during lockdown called I can make you feel good, where he basically, uh, shared his desktop for 24 hours at a time and would sort of use it as a, as a, as a platform for a curation of film and art and, Photography it was really an exciting and one of the most exciting cultural kind of happenings I think to come out of the, the sure. period. Um, and uh, one of his collaborators said, "Oh, you, you know, if you guys are doing this, um, you should definitely be talking to the guys that we present because they're thinking about the same things." And so, you know, it was it was partially, um, you know, we sort of knew each other, but partially, I guess, everyone everyone liked the idea and sort of the, you know, the dots started being connected by the by the community. Thinking about other people 
you know, creatives who are perhaps are in that same situation where all of a sudden one day they're kind of world changed in a little bit. Um, what would you say has been the greatest kind of lesson so far for you in the journey um, of Limbo? And what would you say were the kind of things that you would recommend to others wanting to kind of come into this now in a kind of creative way and maybe to create an asset, to create a sort of a project? What's, mm. the, what's the kind of takeaway of this period been for you? I guess, I mean, I might split it in half and think about it from my perspective personally and then think about it from the perspective of Limbo as a, as a, as a venture. I mean, personally, I think the biggest takeaway um, is, hey, you know, it can't hurt to try, right? You know, you mean if, if something seems too mad to, uh, to be plausible, well, you know, at least give it a go um, because, uh, and, and, you know, I guess that, that's one of the, if you're looking for a silver lining from this kind of period, you know, we all have a little bit more time on our hands, you know, not, not, not voluntarily. We, we, you know, normally we have great ideas. We don't try them out because we're busy doing other things. And so if you, you know, if you've got that space to experiment, certainly don't be afraid because you'll be surprised how many people, uh, you know, might get behind you. Um, you know, also, I guess, be willing to work really hard at it. I mean, it sounds like a kind of a hackneyed maxim, but this was a lot of work, honestly, you know, doing this with a small handful of people, all of whom were working on a voluntary basis. You know, I have, I've worked in the magazine industry for quite a while. Uh, and, you know, I've learned uh, a lot doing this. I mean, I've been running this out of my living room, you know, everything from shipping and production, you know, kind of distribution, warehousing, um, you know, e-commerce. I mean, every little knot and bolt is one that I'm sort of spinning myself. And, um, and that's been great, actually, you know, it's, 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 it's exhausting, but I think being willing to kind of, you know, to dive into that has been, has been great. And, and, you know, even, even if this doesn't go anywhere, just that kind of experience has been great for me. But I think, you know, looking at it from, from the perspective of limbo, I guess, um, you know, I, I, I think that we're in a moment where you can't let yourself be constrained by the assumptions about what kind of a thing that you make. So Limbo is a magazine, but you know, it's kind of like no other magazine. And and in some ways it's not really a magazine. It's a creative collective. It's a, it's a community venture. It's, it's, you know, sort of, um, it it is whatever the people contributing to it want it to be. And I, you know, I I did a a conversation about what's next for magazines more, more, more broadly a few weeks ago. And, we were saying that, you know, the people who survive, the people who, who come out of this stronger are going to be the ones who aren't afraid to, you know, to take their brands and believe that it can be whatever they want it to be, right? You know, and this is really, this is that kind of moment where a magazine can be a shop, it can be a restaurant, it can be, uh, you know, a t-shirt, it can be whatever it is, as long as you have a community of people who make it and a community of people who consume it. So I think this is really, you know, for 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 creative people, this is the moment to sort of take whatever assets you have and to, and to sort of, uh, you know, try to strip away some of the, the boundaries as to what that could be, because, you know, the downside of the world that we're living in is that you can't take anything for granted. You know, you, you, you can't, you can't assume that a magazine will go on existing, that people will go on buying it or people will go on advertising in it. But the flip side of that is that you really can take these things in any direction that you want. And, you know, and I guess the other thing would be, don't be afraid to sort of break some of the rules that seem completely unbreakable. I mean, a magazine should have to make profit if, if, if it's going to survive and, and, and go on. And yet, you know, by taking that out of the equation, we were able to sort of reconfigure the entire way of working. So, 
I guess, you know, for all of us, if we're going to, if we're going to make it through this, we're going to have to be willing to, you know, to really experiment and, and, and push boundaries and play with things. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of, uh, projects that haven't worked and this one has, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for that. And I think it's a, you know, just about sometimes getting the timing and the, um, and the people, right. But, um, you got to keep going, keep trying and keep playing with things and keep breaking some of the rules and seeing, um, seeing what takes you. Well, look, Nick, thanks so much. That's so interesting. I'm so grateful to you as well. Um, how can people, um, connect with Limbo? How can they get a copy? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I, say I've completely forgotten my main responsibility here, which is to plug the products. So uh, clearly I haven't learned everything yet, but, um, so Limbo is available for, uh, for, for sale online at uh, www.limbomagazine.com. Um, we are shipping anywhere in uh, the U S Canada, UK, EU. Um, and we're trying to get, uh, all the other territories online as well. And we've also got some stockists, uh, in, in, in different locations, but as you can imagine, distribution has been, challenge for everybody sure. right now so online is kind of the easiest way to find us right. um but we'd be very grateful if you come if you come and have a look buy a copy all the profits are redistributed to the artists who feature inside the magazine and to the staff of out of work editors designers uh publishers who who make it possible um and your support is what makes the whole project work sure and of course we'll link to that in our in the text for this podcast as well thanks so much nick i'm grateful to you it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much.